Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Elisa Pressman, and today's episode is a conversation with Janet Lansbury, who's an educator trained by Magda Gerber, the founder of Rye. And Rye is an approach to working with infants and toddlers and caring with infants and toddlers that is more about observing. And actually, I'm just going to quote Magda Gerber, observe more, do less, enjoy most. So Rye is really interesting, but doesn't necessarily have to be Rye. You don't have to do an approach like this, but I thought it would be great to hear from Janet to sort of understand the the approach, which is very much mindfulness-centered approach. And like all approaches, take from it what feels right for you and you can leave the rest. And I really enjoyed talking to Janet, who in addition to being a uh, Rye educator has written two best-selling books, Elevating Child Care, A Guide to Respectful Parenting, and No Bad Kids, Toddler Discipline Without Shame. And she has a wonderful podcast called Unruffled. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. And if you don't have infants or toddlers, we're actually talking about it um, not just in the context of infants and toddlers, but also thinking about a mindful approach to parenting throughout our children's development, even our adolescent or adult children. So there's space for everybody to get something out of this. And of course, I will be answering listener questions at the end. Both of them are actually follow-up questions from my Instagram at Raising Good Humans podcast. So please always DM me with any of your questions. Sometimes it takes a really long time for me to get back to you, but eventually I will. And as always, thank you for listening. And please, if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and write a review if it's a good review. (laughs) And um, I really appreciate it. I had my first daughter and... I had thought I had been an actress and things that just never felt like what I was really supposed to be doing, but uh, it was hard to get out of that world because it was somewhat working for me. And anyway, I always felt imposter sy- syndrome, never felt, uh, like think of it as like always putting on shoes that don't really fit you and you're just trying to oh. walk in them. And I was mediocre, <laughs> but it's then it's a tough business unless you're completely committed. Then I had my daughter. Um, all along, 
even through my darkest times, which I've definitely had in my 20s, I had very dark depression. And one of the things that I looked forward to that kept me going was I'm going to be a mom. And that just felt like something that was going to be a happy ever after for me. And so there I was, I had my first beautiful daughter and I thought I was going to have all these instincts that told me what to do. And at that time, people were telling you either they would say, oh, just do it on instinct. Or there was this other uh, way of thinking that was, you have to stimulate and teach and make a super baby out of your baby. So there was that. And then there was the, the instinct. Those were the kind of two modes of thought at that time. And so I was trying to do the she's a blank slate and I've got to stimulate her and teach her uh, right from the beginning and make sure she's occupied. And here I had this tiny baby who was just trying to get her systems organized and just, you know, get rest and do all those things. And in her waking hours, I thought I had to put more input in. And of course, what this did for me was it was exhausting. It was overwhelming. It was fruitless because what would happen invariably is that now I didn't realize this till later is I was overstimulating her. And so therefore she cried more and she would have those late afternoon jags that babies can have. But I know that I made it much worse by uh, playing music for her and putting things on it for her and sitting her in the seat and putting toys in front of her and all the stuff that I was doing besides taking care of all the physical needs that I knew I needed to do. So I was feeling so disappointed in myself, so dark Mm -hmm. and panic attacks and just everything and, and feeling like people do this all the time and they're fine. What's the matter with me? Now, of course, we know that a lot of people struggle, but at that time, it seemed like, I remember somebody said to me, some woman somewhere said, don't you just love being a mom? And, and I, <laughs> I had to kind of nod and like this big smile, but I felt, uh, no, I'm, I love my daughter, but I'm sucking at being a mom. I'm, I don't love this. It's really, really hard. And I feel like I'm getting it all wrong. So anyway, then one day I was reading a local parent magazine about the LA parent magazine in LA about creativity in children. And there was this one quotation from Magda Gerber in this article. I don't remember any of the rest of the article, but she said, take the mobile off their bed take care of their needs and leave them alone. And that was just completely different from anything else I'd ever heard. She sounded like she knew what she was talking about. And I was intrigued. I wanted to understand what that was. And and, uh, of course I'm very interested in creativity. And that was something that I wanted. And I mean, basically I just wanted to survive then, but I didn't know what I was (laughs) missing. So uh, there was a phone number in the back to call Rye, her organization that she founded, Resources for Infant Educators. So I thought, okay, one day I'm just going to, I'll call there. But it took a while and then I called. And so all this, now my baby's only three and a half months still. So this was all in a 
first months. And also you're tra- pra- healing yourself, right? Like you're, yeah. Yeah. It turned out I actually had, uh, still had pregnancy hormones going on because I, I had a retained placenta. Oh that my gosh. 11 weeks later. I don't think I've ever told this. Oh my God. That's so much. Yeah. And I had this, these doctors, it was a team of four doctors that would discount whenever I would say, you know, I'm depressed <laughs> and, oh, that's normal. That's normal. I'm still hemorrhaging. Oh, oh, that's, that's normal. Needless to say, I didn't return to them for my other two children, but right. uh, yeah. Oh. So hormonally I was just you know, going wild um, inside. So I guess it was a relief to know that, although you know, I was lucky, lucky they eventually found it and um, very late and then had to remove it. And that's a whole other thing, but yeah, so there I was. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, but that had already happened by this point. And they said, well, you can go there. I mean, Rye said, we have classes in Silver Lake with Magda Gerber. And for me, that was quite far. That would have been uh, an hour away. Of course, later on, I did it three times a week, but <laughs> I did that drive. <laughs> but in the beginning, now with a three and a half month olds, probably. Yeah, not with a three and a half month old. Definitely not. That's really hard to do. Um, but there was a class closer to me with somebody else, this woman, Harriet Grebler, Harry Grebler. She's wonderful. She still teaches. And she said, okay, just lay your baby down, lie your baby down on this blanket. There were a few other babies in the class and they were a little older than mine. And they, some of them were like scooting across the floor on their tummies and uh, moving around but my baby wasn't. And she said, okay, just lay her on her back and you sit nearby and observe, you know, give her a little space and just observe. And the class was two hours. My daughter who I'd been entertaining nonstop was there for two hours with her eyes open, just so peaceful. She sucked her thumb a little bit at one point. Uh, she just sort of looked to one side and I saw her for the very first time. I saw my girl who's still the same girl. She's, Mm. she's 27. She still has this kind of elegance and this poise about her. And it was stunning. And I was transfixed because I saw that she had thoughts. She had her own point of view. She had stuff inside. I could, I could see it. I could read it just by taking that little step back and observing. I saw this person that was an actual person. Right. (laughs) And of course she never went that long again playing (laughs) because (laughs) I think she knew I got to teach this lady a big lesson. She's really (laughs) lost her. Or she was feeling like she's finally out of my face. She's finally out of my face. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by FX Chocolate. FX Chocolate is a new supplement company that welcomes you to a world where health doesn't have to be a hard pill to swallow, literally. FX Chocolates make powerful nutraceuticals like reishi, ashwagandha, CBD, and phytonutrients and delivers them to you in a delicious square of sugar-free, keto-friendly dark chocolate. Chocolate is a delicious and effective way to take your vitamins and supplements. 
the lipids or healthy fats in chocolate help your cells more readily absorb the nutrients you ingest, making it an amazing delivery system. Good for you does not have to be hard to do. FX Chocolate is offering my listeners 20% off their first order. You use the promo code HUMANS at checkout. To redeem, visit fxchocolate.com and use promo code HUMANS at checkout. Hi, this is Deborah Messing. And I'm Andana Dayani. We decided to create a podcast to introduce you to the people who inspire us most. These are the dissenters. The people who just made a decision one day to break down the establishment and build a new one. In the greatest times of grief or even the most ordinary of circumstances, many heroes will rise. You just have to take that first step. So please tune in. We can be found anywhere you listen to podcasts. There are heroes everywhere. Discover them. Become one. So she didn't do it that long again, but uh, I'm yeah. glad you said that for people who are, who might be listening, thinking, oh my God, my kid could never do that. But right. it just, yeah. but it, what an opportunity to sit and observe your baby. Yes. So it's not something we try to make happen, but we just, we try to be open to that. It could happen. And I think that's the difference is sometimes people one of the many misconceptions about this approach is that uh, because it's a very nuanced approach and it's sort of holistic, so you can't really snapshot it very easily to people, but people think, oh, that's you, your baby has to lay there and you ignore your baby and you, you know, look at your watch and you don't interact and they're supposed to be okay with that. Or if they make a sound, you, you know, ignore them or something like that. Or, you know, you have to make this happen. You have to make this play thing happen. And that's not at all what this is. What it is, is recognizing. And I noticed you had Ellen Galinsky on, who she talks about this and I understands this. And they've done studies where you just give that baby a little bit of space to do things like find their thumb. And it's just sort of uh, the way that you perceive your baby will decide whether you can do this or not. Because if you perceive like I did, then if my child made an, a sound, instead of trying to find out what she was saying, I'm, I got to shut this down. Like I have to put her, move her around and you know, put her on top of the dryer and her seat or, or carry her right. around in my sling and you know, swoop around. And I just got to make this stop. Instead of really looking to see, well, wait, she, you know, had this, like, let's say she was lying on her back. She expressed some discomfort. And I responded back as I went to another person. I responded, looks like you're us. I hear you. Something, something's uncomfortable. What's going on with you? Not expecting she's going to give me a full sentence, of course. But giving that space, which is what the communication does, besides being respectful, and acknowledging that there's a person there gives the space. And then I see her, she's bringing her knees up and she's kind of you know, moving and then maybe she passes gas and they're like, oh, wow, you had a, you know, so it looks like you had a bubble in your tummy and you, <laughs> so giving that space rather than seeing my child as somebody that can't do anything at all 
for themselves and that I've got to, like I was doing, you know, put everything into them and do everything for them. And um, so it's just opening up that little window, opening up that little space of maybe my child, there's something my child can contribute here, even as a newborn infant that I want to, I want to actually encourage and hold space for. And with play, it's about that we, so the natural thing to do is we see our baby wake up and hi baby, you know, I'm going to pick you up. But that baby was actually looking at something. Yes. And we didn't think it mattered or that it was anything because we feel like we're the ones that are supposed to be doing all the stimulating and you know they can't possibly take an interest in something themselves. We're supposed to show them what they're interested in. We're supposed to do the play in front of them and all that. And we interrupt children a lot. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's understandable that if, and then our child gets used to that, that it's harder for them to engage and be active participants in their life and feel like that's welcome and that we want to learn who they are instead of teaching them who they're supposed to be. Right. Yeah. So it can put us on a different path right from the beginning, but there's a lot of great ways to raise children. So it's definitely not the only way, but what I found is it's a much more interesting way to be with children. It's a fascinating way to be with children that makes up for all the, maybe not all the, but many of the (laughs) uh, tedious aspects, draining aspects of being with children. You have all these perks where they surprise the heck out of you and teach you about themselves. It's much more fun to me, at least, and the people that are drawn to this, it's much more fun to learn, discover this other person than it is to try to figure out what I'm supposed to teach now and what I'm supposed to teach now and what I need to put into them right now. And basically, you know, doing everything I think, but there's so much pressure in that. You know, one of the things about this to me, it was relief. It was, whoo, all this energy I was using to do something when I could be enjoying, wondering what this (laughs) wonderful little person is thinking and why she's looking over there for a long time. What is she seeing? And, you know, that's another thing is they help you to see the world anew again. Well, it really sounds like an unfolding and a way of becoming who you are as well as a parent, because we're, of course, starting as newborns as parents. And when you give space to observe and be curious about your who your child is, you give space to find out who you are. And it's so present. So I kind of, it sounds very much like what, you know, if somebody could label what mindful parenting is in a very clear way, that what you just described in, in all of that feels like, and again, I'm hesitant to, Label because of course there are so many different ways to to do this, but that sounds like a beautiful way to give yourself permission to be present and permission to watch and wait and back off so that you can, but you know, 
It's not at all, which you said, and I just want to reiterate, it's not, and you're not neglecting this infant because you're not engaging. If they bid, if, if there's a bid for a conversation in some way, you would be responding to that. It's just that you're not imposing that. Is that accurate? Yes. Yes. That's accurate. Uh, And it's also accurate that we do learn a lot about ourselves if we can manage to restrain some of these. A lot of them are projections. So people that are speaking yet in a clear way, it's so easy to want to project. And projection is a, a healthy kind impulse to want to empathize actually with a child. It's, it's, it's kind of over, over empathizing or it's more, it's because it's about me and what I, what I'm thinking of what I'm seeing, but what happens when you practice this tool of observation, which is really the main thing that we teach in our RIE classes with parents, we're just teaching and practicing how to observe and through observation, again, we learn everything we need to know about our child. But what happens is all these projections come up and they still do for me, even though I've been practicing this mm-hmm. a very long time, almost 30 years now, but it still comes, it still comes because it's human nature. And now I just kind of, I let it come and I kind of smile to myself and like, oh, that's interesting. There well, that is. Yeah. But let's see what she is going to do, or he is going to do, or they are going to do. And, and that's with their emotions and everything. We try to, to do that because, uh, it's just normal for us to, especially as parents that we worry about everything, right. And to worry, oh gosh, my child is, so we'll see our child reaching for something and, oh gosh, he really needs that. He, you know, I got to put it in his hand or get it for him. Mm-hmm. That's me projecting when maybe he was looking at his arm extended or, you know, maybe he was, or maybe they were feeling what it's like to reach. Maybe they were seeing what the distance is between them and that object. I mean, children are so, so inspiring in that they don't, they aren't born wanting results. <laughs> they aren't born <laughs> thinking, uh, my time is wasted if I don't get to whatever point B is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. They're quite quite ready and interested in the messy middle of things or the unknown of things. They like challenges. They don't expect that they got to get it right or get it perfect. And that's something that we instill in them. Or they learn just through, I don't know, taking glasses or like. World, yeah. But but because that's the way we see, unfortunately. But if we could get inspired and take more learning from them, the way they do things, you know, it'd be much healthier for us too, to know that it's really okay to not finish the puzzle or get to the end. You probably know Glossier for their skin products and for their popular glowy, dewy skin look. Glossier also creates makeup products, body care products, and fragrances. Glossier believes in the power of self-expression and personal choice in beauty and beyond. So they're always in conversation with their community about the best ingredients, 
the best techniques, and dream products. And the result is products that condense the best of beauty and are inspired by real routines. They are, of course, cruelty-free, fragrance-free, and dermatologist-tested ingredients. My favorite is the bomb.com because it's just smoothing and hydrating and natural. And I'm not a heavy makeup wearer because, well, I don't go anywhere. (laughs) So you can choose from the original, which is also a skin salve for anywhere. I put it on my cuticles as well. And also there are fun flavored formulas like mint and coconut. And there are some with a sheer tint, which is about all I can do on my lips. And they're packed with antioxidants and nature's heavy-duty moisturizers to soothe and nourish. And I love the Future Dew. It's an instant post-facial glow. It's just an oil serum with light reflecting ingredients for dewy, glowy skin. And it has plant-based extracts to brighten skin while silky oils nourish thirsty skin. So it's just a last step application after sunscreen and other serums for an instant glow. Get the entire boy brow plus future do plus bomb.com set by visiting glossier.com slash podcast slash humans. And for a limited time, new customers can get 10% off your first order. This deal expires soon, so act fast. That's G-L-O-S-S-I-E-R.com slash podcast slash humans. Let's take one example of, let's say your baby is uh, just like they've learned to roll onto their tummy. So they're on their tummy, but they're not really moving that much yet. They're not mobilizing that much yet on the floor. And you have balls, which is one of the toys that we recommend because they're so open-ended and versatile. And uh, you can get ones with all different feels and different colors Mm -hmm. and everything else, different sizes. And let's say the baby... There were some balls nearby and the baby reached out and touched the ball and the ball rolled across the room. Well, so there's so many ways that we could look at that. So one projection we might have is, okay, uh, I need to go get the ball and roll it back to the baby. None of these are wrong. It's just different. (laughs) It's just uh, just a different way to look at it. So I got to do that because that's me feeling like my baby needs an answer. They need to finish this and I need to teach what catches or whatever, what playing ball is. So that's one way. Another might be the parent leaves it because they want their child to scoot across the floor. I really want my child to start scooting across the floor. So I'm going to leave that there. And now I'm sitting here hoping my child is going to scoot across the floor. But if they don't, I'm going to be disappointed and a little annoyed, or we can have an even wider open lens, uh, which is the one that we recommend and that you naturally will develop if you practice observing, you'll naturally develop this. If you practice observing and minimal intervention and Mm -hmm. allowing it to unfold. So now I'm looking and I'm seeing, just I'm checking out what my child thinks of what's going on with them. And Maybe they make a sound like, you know, and now I think, uh oh, they're unhappy that that's over there. 
but maybe I don't jump to that and I just respond. Wow, you're saying something about that. Did you notice that ball rolled over under the table over there? It's under the table now. So now I'm teaching my child language in the way that they learn best, which is it matters to them. They're interested in it. It's happening to them. They're feeling it with all their senses. They felt that ball. They see where it rolled. Now they're hearing the language that goes with that. So that's a really great way to teach. Forever. (laughs) Yeah. And oftentimes that is what children, like you'll see, like when we think they're saying, oh my gosh, get me the, the ball. They're actually saying, I see a ball went rolling over there. The ball uh-huh. went rolling over there, mom. Um, you know, when children, when babies say anything, it can sound like they're irritated because that's the way they express themselves. You know, especially some, you'll see some children are just more expressive than others. And it's mm-hmm. hard for those parents because they think their child is upset all the time. And their child is actually just telling you everything that's going on. And it's something to encourage. So we let that happen maybe. And then our child is learning all these other things through this experience. They're learning cause and effect. They're learning maybe some physics there. They're learning that they have power in the world to make things happen. And it's, you know, for us, we have all the power. So if I come over and fix that and bring the ball back, it's, I've lessened that a little bit. I've lessened that feeling that child has of, look what I did. It becomes, all right, I'm going to do something even more magical than you right now. Of course, we're not thinking that way. Yes, yes. <laughs> but no, it's such so a magical. Yeah, so now we're, that child, in, in this little experience, this one experience, our child can learn language. They can, maybe they start to crawl over there or not but they're learning that they have power in the world. They're feeling like what they're doing is enough because that's another thing that Magda always said that's so spot on. And that's, this is for the parent that really wants my child to scoot over there. When we do that, we miss what they are doing. We miss all the stuff that they are doing there, all the stuff that's going on in this child's mind, what they're interested in, what they're learning. We don't see it because we are disappointed that they're not doing what we think they should do. So instead of appreciating what children are doing, we're wanting them to do more. And that's like a societal thing that we all have. Completely. And it, and the message then of course gets internalized or is it a real risk for getting internalized? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's like when you're dating somebody and everybody's, Oh, what are you going to, get married. And then when are you going to have a good child? When are you going to have another child? You know, there's never, never enough. We can't just enjoy where we're at, but children can, they can teach us this. They can yes. <laughs> us this way. So all of these messages we can give our child by not retrieving the ball, by just being open to the experience and seeing, you know, what, what happens. And it's less work for us too. We can be surprised at our child and then our child turns around and (laughs) goes on to something else. Mm -hmm. Um, They usually wouldn't cry and cry about something unless it was the pattern that somebody always brought it back. And then children learn from that because they're amazing learners, of course. 
And everything we do is teaching them something, whether we want it to or not, and teaching them a lot of things. And so they're there, they have an expectation. Okay, here's the part where they're supposed to, you know, it magically comes back to me and that's supposed to happen. So that's usually the only reason they would cry or if they were tired or hungry or something else. But, but generally they don't. If we uh, can practice this, they don't. They're just like, oh, huh, that's interesting. And now I'll go on to something else or I'll keep looking at that or, or something. So it's, it's not, there's nothing to fear in this. So what is Peanut? Peanut is an app that connects you with like-minded women throughout all stages of motherhood. Peanut provides a safe space for mothers, expectant mothers, and those trying to conceive to build friendships, ask questions, and find support. Introducing you to women nearby who are at a similar stage in life, Peanut provides access to a community of women who are there to listen, share information, and offer valuable advice. Whether it's understanding IVF, adoption, pregnancy, first years, or nursery and beyond, Peanut is a place to connect with women like you. We know from studies that pregnancy and becoming a parent can be incredibly isolating. And becoming a mom is fraught with so much stress and also so much joy. So having a community to connect with is of course of utmost importance to me or I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. So you can download the app for free today and head to peanut.app.link slash raising good humans or just find it on your app store. And, and importantly, if they do continue to really helping kids, even at the young age of that, you know, of babies, that you can observe what they're trying to express rather than judge it and fix it is, again, an exercise that is going to influence even your interactions when they're adolescents. Like these are beautiful moments to start out of the gate kind of not as the judge, just, you know, a guy, a supportive guide, but, but not a judge, which I think is, it gets harder and harder over time. And infancy is such a a beautiful opportunity to practice our own restraint so that we can be curious and open and allow things to happen but it's hard because we're new at parenting at that time. And it's hard to watch things happen in a way that we didn't maneuver. I think we're all getting a dose of how little control we have right now. And it's in some ways, the good part of that is that letting go of trying to control how your infants experiences with the exception of, of course, getting the, fed and sleep and nurturing, obviously that goes without saying, but um, really allowing space and pausing is such a simple, elegant way of being. It's just something that you have to practice forever and ever because it's so challenging, which is funny. Like, why is that so hard? But it is. 
Yeah, I don't really know why it's so hard, but it definitely is. It's definitely still still hard for me. And and then I think we're influenced and there is a lot of information out there and it can be tough. I mean, that so that even that experience with the ball that I was talking about, that could get translated into a somebody saying, and this is, happens a lot with this approach, oh, that's the approach where you don't play ball with them. You never play with your baby. Um, right, right. That's, that's not what you're saying. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is like a very engaged, like highly engaged, attuned response. But seeing, you know, your child with this lens of that your child is a capable person with that ideally we want to welcome anything that they could do on their own. So there's everything in life that we have to do for them from the time they're born. But there are a few things that we can hold space for, just like my daughter in that class holding space for her to have a thought, her to have a moment, her to have her own daydream and play or whatever she was thinking. She could do that by herself. And so anytime there's a possibility that a child could do something for themselves, which is usually means that we, like you said, we wait, we hold that space, a little bit of space just to see. It just builds and builds on their uh, confidence and yes. and agency, their inner directedness that we want them to have. You know, you and I were talking about careers. Well, we can keep them in touch with this inner directedness that they are born with by not outer directing them so much. We can help them stay attuned to what I want to do and who I am and what, I, what I'm here for. Somehow in the messaging to kids or parents or something got all mixed up where confidence we've confused with like, if you tell a child how wonderful they are rather than helping them become competent because you backed off and watched and believed in them that they're capable of doing things that that will somehow grow their confidence. And it is interesting that so much of that stuff that we then later in life hope to promote, it's undoing some of the things that we in a well-meaning way intervened on early in life. This is fine tuning that we can do that. Yes. Does make a difference. And we can change it at any time too. So when I was trained in this approach, uh, Magda, she taught us how to start the foundation and her work is focused on the first two years of life because she saw that that was the most important time to understand these things and get these patterns going with ourselves so that we actually could start to see differently we can start to, she called it seeing infants with new eyes. That mm. because if you don't see it, it's really hard to get it. I've had conversations with people who are going around and around in circles and and then I realize they have a different lens and they're not seeing that this person is capable of anything. So this is, you know, it's impossible. Everything that you're saying to me is so mindful. And I, I know that's like a such a current words. So maybe it captures something that sounds too poppy, but it's so um, intentional with good, curious intention. And in that moment, it's sort of, it's a really beautiful thing. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah. And I was going to say it's, that's, that's what I was talking about, about the lens of not really seeing a person. So if I don't really see, this is a, a whole person there, then to me, there's only two responses that I'm ignoring you or I'm picking you up so you can feel touch. And that that's the only thing you can understand. You can't feel me paying attention to you. And, and now we know, of course, that in all these studies show aware babies are born so aware mm-hmm. and so much more aware than we are as adults. And, and they're taking in, they can feel the difference if you're really paying attention or you're not. But if we don't see that, we see, we only can see that. And this is the conversation I get into a lot with people, whether it's about sleep or, you know, anything, especially if a baby is expressing something that doesn't sound so happy you're either fixing it or you're ignoring it and they don't see no there's there's actually discussing like i mean being open not that they're going to discuss back but being open to learning more and you do that's happened so many times where we've found hey this baby's diapers on too tight and the baby was like putting their hand there you know there's so many things that we miss by not seeing this person. And like what you were saying about parents wanting to be there to raise the best kid or whatever. So once we realize that's an actual person with their own journey in life that they're gonna have and different from us and not an extension of us, but actually their own person and a capable person, even at birth, once we realize that then our job what we're working at is a relationship. It's not a building a person. It's navigating a relationship that's going to teach our child pretty much everything about relationships and what their value is in a relationship. And so that's what we do. I can say that for sure. I mean, my three kids are not perfect <laughs> in every way. I mean, I think they are. They will tell you they're not. But our relationship is amazing (laughs) and they can tell me everything. They can have their feelings with me. My son, as well as my daughters have vulnerable feelings. They can share things I never would have shared with my parents ever with me. And it's for life. And this is what I got in this for, you know, often when I do talks or things with parents, I usually ask in the beginning, like, think about why you, did this? You know, why did you have a child? What do you want out of this? And it's just a good thing to kind of consider. And it usually comes down to what we want is to have a great relationship with this brand, a brand new person. And yeah. And so we, we have a lot of power in that. I just, I don't even know what I want to say about this other than to acknowledge that when you were talking about just kind of getting into this in the first place and how it felt like there was either you're going to make a super baby or it's instinct only parenting. And I don't know that that's as changed as I, you know, it has not evolved as much as I think we would all hope, although there's so much information out there, but I do, I was thinking too, I'm glad you said that because I do feel like there's this pressure to commit to one or the other instead of acknowledging that it can be something completely different. And also that instinct parenting is also cruel to women in particular um, because the expectation is that you've never done this before and yet you're supposed to just know exactly what to do because what feels right is just going to be. And there's 
there's an enormous pressure in that for those of us for whom that is not true, you know? And so I think that that can feel very undermining. And the super baby thing is obviously very undermining, like a little bit, it's a little bit more of an obvious one, but it's, it feels like if, I guess what I was responding to with what you said is there seems like there's, you're not allowed to say, you know, yes. And yes, of course there are things to do in our interactions with our children that will collaborate with their learning. So it doesn't mean that, like you said, this isn't about just like sitting there staring and just seeing what happens. You can actually interact with your child, but that doesn't mean, you know, that you're being a helicopter parent or a, what's the new one? Snowplow. Oh, I don't and even know what that is. <laughs> there are just all these, like, there are just all these very cruel, I think, parenting cliches. Like you're a snowplow parent, you're a helicopter parent, you're a laissez-faire parent. There are just all these labels with what kind of parent you are or are or not supposed to be. And I feel like the that's the, insulting to us. Like as if we're exactly you know, it's just like labeling, you know, it's labeling your child, oh, this is a brat or this is a bully. Exactly. Exactly. And I've just, I, it just drives me a little crazy. So when you said that, cause I just thought, I understand articles need to be exciting and appealing for people to read them. So people create these concepts that are pretty extreme, but for the most part, I don't experience that in interacting with parents and friends of mine who are parents and my own parenting. It's very much like a dynamic experience of some days or, you know, and moments or different than others. And we're not just a thing, like a style in particular. Right. But I mean, no, it's, it has to go with our instincts. Like we have to, something has to feel instinctively right for us to do it. Well, maybe not for everyone, but for, I guess I'm just speaking for myself that what I felt with this approach was, wow, I never would have thought of these things, but this feels so right. And this is like, Mm -hmm. Uh, changing my experience to one of joy and clarity and I'm in the groove and this is, this is right for me. And your, it's your flow like that, whatever. And you don't have to just, maybe it's a combination of things. Like you said, that just, I like this idea from that, but that just doesn't feel right. It's got to be, it comes down to instinct in the end, but like I, my instincts never would have told me to do the things that I do. Well, you know that, but that's also because I imagine if you, if the experience that you had being parented is informing how you parent, which it inevitably will, and you didn't know that that there was a possibility to, to engage in the way that you ended up engaging or that nobody gave you permission to do that or whatever it was, that then all of a sudden the freedom of finding out that what feels right and joyful for you is just something that was out there that you just had, that hadn't occurred to you because that wasn't what your experience was. Right. And I just also want to say, because we've talked a lot about the follow the child aspects of of this, and it's kind of important just for balance and also to bring up what we were talking about earlier. Boundaries. It all happens within boundaries. So when we're talking about observing, for example, we're not observing this isn't, I mean, it can be in an open field, but what we're talking about is a, a safe environment. So we're not jumping up. No, 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 don't do this. Blah, blah, you know, 
which is hard on us and hard for our child to, to actually get involved in their learning. They're going to be testing us. What makes this person jump? What makes that person jump? You know, mm-hmm. even as an infant, if we're doing that. So it all starts with boundaries and that's true with everything. And when I talk about like my own instinct before this, for sure was even till my child was, my first was like two was, I don't want to ever say no and make somebody mad. Like that's not my instinct. Um, my instinct is everything, you know, I'm not going to make people do things they don't want to do and I'm not going to stop people and I don't want anybody to get mad at me. So that's where I was coming from. That's been my huge learning curve in this. But if we're continuing that same vision of our child as a capable person, and that means capable of feeling all every kind of emotion. Yes. Yeah. And trust ourselves in this relationship where it's, it's not a relationship of two peers. It is, somebody has got to be the leader. And if we're not the leader, then our child has to be the leader. And we've all seen where that goes. Seen where that goes. And it's just a kind of a old before your time, you know, they don't get a childhood. Because now I'm just so busy trying to control the grownups. I'm not getting to just be a happy-go-lucky kid playing around. So I had to realize, because I have a very strong oldest daughter, um, that elegant girl that (laughs) played for two hours really showed me. Um, she was ready to take over the house at any moment. And <laughs> I was ready to let her, <laughs> frankly, right. until I realized that was not a nice, she, she couldn't tell me. Yeah. This. She was too young to be president or president's right. the wrong analogy. <laughs> but the pro- the hard thing is for parents when the children get in taller year is your child can't, when your child's a baby, they can kind of tell you when something they need something they're not getting. They're, mm-hmm. It's pretty straightforward, but toddlers and beyond can't tell you that they really want you like that little girl to help them and set the limit and be the leader and let them yell or however they uh, respond in return, not to try to shut that down, but to do our job, be the parent and do those hard things. That's what love is. You know, it's, I wanted it just to be all the nice, happy, laughy stuff, but real love for a child is to be able to take on that leadership role, not in their play, but in the right. moments. And now for listener questions. My oldest child is almost five. And when he was on the playground, I would be hovering and saying, be careful. And oh, maybe not that. But my youngest child, who's two years old, has so much more freedom and it gives him so much more confidence because I'm not hovering. I see my five-year-old completely unsure of himself and he's only secure when I'm guiding him. How do I help him? How do I help him gain freedom? I never even let him play by himself as a toddler. How do I help him learn that skill? How do I fix being too much of a parent, being too worried for lack of a better word and being too controlling? How do I help him get the freedom that his brother has? And how do I fix this mistake that I made? How do I help myself from doing it in the future? And thank you so much for always having a very calm voice when everything seems crazy. Oh my, I feel how much this listener is being hard on herself. And I just, I want to tell you that your first kid was your first kid and we're starting, you know, fresh 
as a parent with our first children. So of course it's totally natural to be a little more overprotective and overly curating in the first try. And then, you know, there is a freedom for a lot of second kids that, you know, you've got this, you know, that they're going to be okay. And sometimes they're not, but you know, they'll be okay enough. And so you have more ease with them and that gives them more ease and confidence. What I want to tell you is you still have a really little kid, just five years old. And there's so much room to say, you know what? Let me try backing off a little bit and being supportive, but allowing for some discomfort and some challenges that he can find his way out of in a way that helps him feel more confident. And a lot of times parents phrase things as, you know, have I ruined my kid or what can I do? And the truth is, is that these are dynamic relationships and you always can shift. And sometimes there's with growth, a little discomfort, which is very natural and that's okay. So I would just congratulate you for being aware that your oldest kid is maybe feeling a little tighter and less free and that you are clearly capable of allowing for that freedom within, of course, the boundaries that are safe and appropriate. So now it's just giving yourself permission to shift a little bit and allow for the discomfort that might come with that growth. But most importantly is please be gentle to yourself because I can hear through your words that you are blaming yourself for doing something terrible. And all you have done is become a parent who's evolved over the years and become more able to step back. And so now you just have to practice and I know you can do it. So I just want you to take a deep breath and remind yourself what you're going to do when you have the temptation to step in and fix things and what you could do instead in that moment and how much you can get comfortable with will stretch you and your window of tolerance for your five-year-old's discomfort. And then it will stretch your five-year-old's tolerance as well. The next listener question is, how do I establish a nap routine with my five-month-old twins? Do I do the same schedule or not? I'm finding it really confusing. Okay, that is on the one hand, a very specific question. On the other hand, I chose to answer this question because it's a really common question. And um, it's tricky because it's all well and good to follow your child's lead when you have one, but when you have twins then you have to kind of find the balance between finding, you know, the right timing for each individual twin while also acknowledging that you can't customize the schedule and make things exactly perfect for both of them because they do need to have schedules that are more in sync because you have to be able to live your life and function and it would just be way too hard to have individual schedules for most people. So I would say, try to ignore your well-meaning friends who might suggest what their schedule is with their singleton baby, because that's not the situation you're in and they just don't understand. And pick the, for lack of a, a better word, the more spirited or high need child to support and choose the right timing. So if you have one who's a little bit more flexible and one who needs a little bit more to get to sleep, pick that child's schedule and 
have both of them work their way on it. Now, here's a luxury that many people don't have. So I'm, I'm going to say it with the caveat that I understand if this is not possible. But for some people, they find that while nighttime sleeping in the same room works out, naps are really sensitive and hard to get on track in the same room. So if you can have a pack and play, I'm not advocating for pack and play, but some portable sleeping arrangement and put one baby in a, in your room and one baby in their room or, or some shift of where they are and they can sleep in separate rooms, it's sometimes helpful just to get them really good at napping. But you don't have to do that by any means. Um, you just want to make sure to get a bedtime routine and a nap time routine that works for your babies and keep it super consistent during, you know, the course of a couple of weeks and they will adapt to each other. We know that twins tend to adapt to each other. And if there is a situation where one of them just simply cannot adapt to the schedule, again, use that as the lead scheduler, the lead in scheduling for the two of the babies. And hopefully the other one will just follow suit. Thank you so much for listening and wishing everyone a good-ish, good enough, maybe even wonderful week. Very, very grateful for all of you. 